Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jeff Ely, who is the Director of the Mathematical Methods in Social Sciences at Northwestern University. He's a microeconomic theorist with interests ranging from pure game theory to applied microeconomics to behavioral and experimental economics. His work includes contributions to the foundations of game theory under incomplete information, repeated games, and the evolution of preferences. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society, he was a founding co-editor of the Open Access Journal, Theoretical Economics. Welcome, Jeff. Hi. I want to start with uh, one of your papers, Suspense and Surprise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you say um, you, you model, uh, a model demand for non-instrumental information, yeah. drawing on the idea that people derive entertainment utility from suspense and surprise. Uh, a period has more suspense, you say, if the variance of the next period's beliefs is greater. So I guess uh, more uncertainty about the future, more suspense. And uh, a period has more surprise if the current belief is further from the last period's belief. Yeah. So more, more surprise if you know, what happened is more different from what we expected. Yeah. I think 35 days from elections, we have a lot of suspense. Yeah. And perhaps we might be getting ready to be, uh, to, to be surprised. Yeah. And so could you, could you talk a bit about what the paper is about and um, the entertainment value uh, around that and how that could have some practical applications? Sure. So, um, yeah, I think, you, I think you've summarized the concepts pretty well. Um, suspense is a forward-looking notion. Um, it's... it's um, a function of how much uncertainty there is in the future. Suspense is a backward-looking notion. It's a function of um, how much, uh, how, how far the actual realization turned out to be from the typical one or the expected one. Um, of course, they, they, in some sense, go hand in hand. And we could take the election example you were talking about to illustrate. So there would be no suspense if there was not going to be any chance of surprise. If we were sure there were going to be no surprises, then there would be nothing suspenseful about. Um, however, it's not necessary that um, there be expected to be a lot of surprise uh, for it to be suspenseful. Um, the suspense is, is a function of the possibility of surprise and perhaps the magnitude of the surprise. Um, indeed, it's almost paradoxical to say that there, we could expect a lot of surprise because the mere um, expectation of something makes it less surprising. So in some sense, uh, in order to get a lot of either of these things, surprise or suspense, there has to be not too much uncertainty. Um, right. It would be something that we we uh, sort of are counting on, but another sort of nagging possibility that might also arise that might surprise us. 
Uh, yeah, that's, so that's interesting. So in a typical election scenario, the at least in the U.S. context, we have a binary outcome. Yes. And so, so you know, the surprises is, is really bounded yes. by those outcomes. Yes. Yes. In in this case, at least in this iteration, uh, there seems like there are a lot of possible outcomes in between those binary outcomes too. So it makes it much more, much more interesting. Indeed, right. right. So. Um, it's a, yeah, you could say that it's, uh, it's a handicap for a surprise if there are only two outcomes. Um, you'd really have to expect one of them, and the other one would be the surprising one. Um, yes. On the other hand, if there were just a million possibilities and you had no idea whatsoever, then you know, you're not going to be surprised. You're, you're, you're expecting one of those things. They're all kind of equally likely. There's not really any... Um, uh, chance of surprise. So, so I, I think, yeah, that you might say that this situation, which faces us in about five weeks, is kind of um, the maximal one in terms of the possibility of surprise, and therefore making it very suspenseful. Because um, you know, we kind of expect that most likely one of the two typical outcomes will arise, but there are all kinds of other ones that are. <laughs> Unlikely, but there. And um, yeah, if one of those happens, you'll be very surprised. And the fact that one of them might happen happen uh, puts us in a lot of suspense. Yeah. So you touched on this in the paper. So um, the the entertainment value. So there is in a sort of a optimization problem. So. You say, you know, a number of industries, provision of entertainment is a crucial service, mystery novels, soap operas, sports events, and casinos all create value by revealing information over time in a manner that makes the experience more exciting. Yes. Um, and like you said, if the uncertainty of an outcome is so, um, so wide, you know, in terms of uh, what the possibilities yeah. are, then you cannot really be surprised. Yeah. You just, you know, you're just getting a yes. random outcome. Yes. So there's some sort of an optimality exactly. between the two, right? So, so that was the that was the inspiration for writing the paper. Um, we had the idea that, um, to the extent that entertainment, um, in large part, is related to the revelation of information. Now, of course, there's lots of other aspects of entertainment, which is beyond just pure information, but cer certainly information is a big part of it. When you're watching a football match, um, really what's happening over time is that you're getting, you're getting little signals about the final outcome. And, you know, like the guy in a basketball game, every time they score, it changes the probabilities of the outcome. And just seeing that happen and experiencing the, um, revision in your expectations about what's going to happen, that by itself is entertaining, and we wanted to capture that. And, and the inspiration for the paper was noticing that, you know, it's not just any old information revelation process. It, it's the things that are really entertaining take a particular shape, and we wanted to see if we could use the tools of game theory, of information economics, of just the models that we have in economics for information processing, to be able to use a precise language and pin down just what it was about suspenseful events or surprising events that distinguished them from just, you know, watching someone toss coins. Um, yeah, right. And... Um, you know, the, so the, the reason that the paper sort of has two titles, really, Suspense and Surprise, and it really has two parts, and they're almost completely separate from one another, although we've already mentioned the, the necessary connections, is that um, we, 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 we sort of thought that there were really two key features that um, made information interesting. And uh, so we tried to boil them down into those two sort of essential elements right and so so it's sort of a principal agent problem here so the principal let's say the guy who's writing the novel yeah. or the guy who's making the movie yeah. so to speak and the, and the audience yes. right and so the principal seeks to maximize expected undiscovered sum per of per period utilities of the yes. audience and so uh so so you have a model here 
to, to sort of maximize that. Uh, so you have a, a formula. If, if I sit down to write a novel, could I use uh, some of your insights to actually create something that is yeah. optimal for that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'll give a whole long laundry list of caveats after afterwards, yeah. but but you know the the um, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, let's say we're talking about you know I, I think we use this example as a as an illustration in the paper. That's we. We think you're writing a mystery novel, okay? So um, our formula for you would be to start by, you know, uh, inventing some characters, some suspects. Um, you know, there's a dead body. You start with a dead body, and then you and then you describe for the reader a bunch of potential suspects. Um, and uh, in in the process, you you create the uh, uncertainty in the mind of the reader about who it was that done it. Um, and, uh, and then you proceed through the course of the novel to reveal information which changes these beliefs. And yeah. the, you know, without getting into the precise details, the key issue that you face when you write this novel is that, um, there's only there's only so much credibility uh, on the part of the reader that you have to work with. It's sort of your scarce resource that you're trying to optimize. That is to say that um, it wouldn't work if on page two you made it appear as if for sure the butler did it. On page three there was a dramatic plot twist where now it was certain that the chef did it. And then page four, the next, you know, household uh, servant, etc. Because you know, in formal terms, in in the language of our model, a Bayesian information processor just can't have his beliefs move around that much. Just the mathematics of um, conditional probabilities puts a constraint on how much movement there can be in, in someone's beliefs, at least with positive probability over any path of time. Yeah, I was thinking about this, Jeff. You know, I, I thought of, you know, sort of a surprise fatigue yeah, right, if I write right, a right, novel. Right. And I keep surprising yes. the audience. At some point, yeah. they're going to fatigue yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the surprise. Now, I would, I would put that, I, I, I would, that, that is definitely another spin on what I just said. but. Just to emphasize a slight difference, I would put that more in the caveat. So, so let me just try to return to that thought uh, after just a little bit more explaining what this what this constraint is and what the formula would be that we would prescribe yeah. for you. Um, now, if if your goal is to make the novel suspenseful, I, and I suppose you know that's what. Um, that's the hallmark of a great mystery novel. Of course, there's also the surprise that happens in the big reveal, and that's that's a big that's a big part of it too. But I think the thing that keeps you turning pages in a mystery novel is the suspense. And um, so, if, if you think about suspense, and you you start with the constraint that we were just alluding to, that you can't have the reader's expectations jump around like crazy over time. What you really want to do is find the find the path, find the plot for your story, which makes the most use of that you know scarce credibility. And uh, this is where the math comes in. Okay, it just turns out that if you yeah. if you write down that optimization problem, the constraint comes from the you have Bayesian updating applied to conditional beliefs that puts a real quantifiable constraint on what you can do. It turns out that the optimal way to write this novel is to have a um, to have a plot that works something like this. As the reader goes along, there's a kind of um, storyline that he thinks of as like the default, the most likely resolution of all of this. Like you know, it looks like it's most likely the butler. Okay, um, yeah. and yeah. and each each time you reveal some information, it's going to be of one of two sorts. It's either going to be just another piece of information that confirms that, yes, it's likely to be the butler. 
every time that happens, the reader is more and more expecting that it's the butler. But then very rarely, okay, um, you will have a plot twist, a large plot twist, uh, which unlike the, the impossible scenario I described before where you switch from the reader being certain that it's the butler to being certain it's the chef, the plot twist will be something a little bit more less dramatic. It will be like, you know, you thought it was the butler and now you're, you're not sure, but now you think it's more likely that it's the chef, okay? And maybe there might be another one that later on switches it to another character, but these things will happen very rarely, okay? Um, and they'll happen at random times. You want to you want to create the expectation in the reader's mind that he never knows when the next plot twist is coming. Okay. And yeah, that's interesting. So let me ask you one thing, uh, Jeff. So my intuition, I'm obviously not a mystery writer. My intuition was you need some sort of a, a variance. Uh, I would have thought that sort of a constant variance on suspense. What you're saying is that uh, you you kind of provide uh, small yes. shocks to the system, and so the variance. So, so, so this you know, is the thing. So yeah. this is yeah. this kind of gets to the difference between the surprise and the suspense. These small, these these rare but large changes. These are the surprises that will happen. Okay, but hmm. the in fact the variance is constant because every time before turning the page, the reader knows that there is a probability that this surprise is going to happen, okay? And the probability that that's going to happen is the same every time he turns a page, okay? So, right. so looking forward, before turning the page, the suspense is kind of held constant over time. But looking backward, you notice that on page 12, and then again on page 305, and then again on page 307, there were a couple of plot twists. But, but they could have happened on page 15, page 19, and page 400. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so it's a complex problem in some sense, right? So um, obviously the audience is not, um, not uniform. Everybody yes. has, has his or her yes. preferences. Uh, maybe they weight the suspense and surprise factors yes. differently. Yes. So for a... Yes. For a writer, is is the writer sort of maximizing utility for yeah. the average reader, or how? how yeah, this so this this kicks off the caveat. So for sure, our model is simplified in many many ways. Okay, one of them you just alluded to. We're sort of taking the representative reader and acting as if he's the only reader, or everyone's identical to him, and the, and the the writer is catering to that one particular taste. And of course, if they're, the readers are heterogeneous, then we, we would have to take a stand on who should be the target. You know? and, and this is really kind of more of a marketing question, really. Um, this kind of gets yeah. to more like mainstream economics. So you, you've, got, you've got heterogeneous tastes and you can produce a product of a certain variety. Which segment of the market do you cater to? So you know, we're, we're sort of working in the usual spirit of economic theory of kind of trying to focus on the new thing and understanding that the reader of our paper, not the reader of the suspense novel, will be able to, you know, fold this into his understanding of all of the other factors that are relevant. Let me just bring up one other caveat because we, we alluded to it before. I think it was related to your comment. So you, you talked about surprise fatigue. And for sure, that's one way to express the idea that um, that the, there's a constraint on the credibility that the writer can expect from the reader. Um, the the way I would put it, however, is to say that there there has to be some familiarity on the reader's part with this writer. Okay, the writer has to have somehow established a relationship with the reader so that the reader understands that the writer is following through the, with these steps. The reader needs to know that on page six, when there wasn't a plot twist, this doesn't just mean that this is a boring novel. The reader knows that this was a page six drawn randomly from a continuum of possible page sixes that could have come out of his you know, novel writing machine. 
And um, right. the fact that this one came out this way gives him some information about what's going to happen on page seven. And that information comes from knowing the style of this writer. So this, this prescription applies, let's say, to Stephen King. Okay. So Stephen King, who writes every, who writes, you know, a, a zillion novels, and you could say they're all formulaic, even though they're all different. They're formulaic in the sense that they're cr he's cranking his optimal suspense generating machine every single time to pull out another book that, that will, um, that will resonate with his readers. Okay, so so the, a reader who's familiar with the writer, and I guess you know somebody like uh, Stephen King or somebody who's written a lot of yes. different novels, over time there is a self-selection process, right? So he's going to have an audience who likes his uh, yes. writing style. And what you are, uh, if I understand this correctly, Jeff, what you're saying is that the writing style also includes sort of the expected variance of suspense and sort of the expected frequency yeah. of surprises. So there yeah. is a formula yes. that the writer has, yeah. that yes. the reader knows. And, and in fact, um, there is an optimal formula. So, so there is a little bit of a equilibrium problem that the writer has, which is that if he creates the wrong expectations in the mind of his reader, well, the next book he writes, it has to be in the shadow of those expectations. He's sort of constrained by that. What he really wants is the readers to have the expectation that he's using the optimal formula. And if they have that expectation, then he can go ahead and use the optimal formula knowing that they will understand it in the right way. And now he will have achieved the optimum. Okay. So this, this issue, this equilibrium issue is something, again, we don't confront in the paper. We, we act as if the author can, let's say in a preface for his book, say, you're about to read a book which was generated by this optimal suspense generating machine. Here's the description of it. Now, the description doesn't tell you the plot. It tells you the, the algorithm from which the plot will be randomly generated. And knowing that algorithm, now I can proceed to read the book and understand each page in light of that formula. Yeah, this is so interesting, Jeff. So would you say, you know, there's there's a lot of um, recommendation systems like Netflix and, yeah. and other things, right? So would you say those recommendation systems could utilize something like this? Yeah, I mean, there is certainly a similar friction there. That's uh, the, in order for the recommender to expect that his recommendation will be used in the right way, he needs to know what the recommender's beliefs are about the algorithm from which the recommendation is drawn. Um, yeah, what I mean is, you know, if you apply a AI to it, so, you know, maybe the current features are things like theme and, you know, other more commonplace themes. Uh, but these features, such as the variance and suspense and the surprise. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. So interestingly, when we started writing the paper, um, we, we thought of sports as another perfect example. It has differences with no novel writing, obviously, because a sporting event unfolds, you know, by random chance. There isn't a designer. The designer's role is just to, the rules of the game, etc. But when, when we were thinking about sporting events, we thought uh, we could take, let's say, a football game or a tennis match and plot over time the beliefs of the viewer about the outcome, okay? And, and in fact, it's quite easy to do with the right data. And, and we thought these plots were sort of, rep they, they were the perfect representation of the excitement value of a sporting event. And it wasn't long after that, of course, it had nothing to do with us writing this paper, but it wasn't long after that, that when you went to like ESPN, for example, you would see these plots. Um, so you, you could look at yesterday's, you know, basketball, slate of games and each one of them you could watch uh, you could look at the plot of the probability that the home team was going to be the winner for each moment in the in time and if you saw that thing wiggle around a lot then you knew that was an exciting game uh, interestingly as you point out there there are similar things you could do with a novel so if somehow these ai could take the stephen king novels and distill from them the algorithm that he must be using. And then all of the fans of Stephen yeah. King, we could then recommend to them 
other novels that seem to be coming from a similar algorithm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if it gets sophisticated enough, you could right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, so you know, different games, as you say, sports have very different characteristics, right? So, soccer, for example, the belief path, as as you have seen, uh, as you have illustrated here, is yes. going to have big jumps in it. Yes. Not many scores. Yeah. When a goal is scored, yeah. the whole belief changes, yeah. right? Whereas basketball or yeah. cricket or something like that is a um, lot of lot of uh, scores, and it's very small, yeah. small changes, right? Um, and so do we have a view as to, I guess it, it's very difficult to do because the, the fans of these right. games, I would imagine, right. are very different. In other words, I'm asking the question, are soccer fans typically... Right, basketball? right. No, it's... Uh, um, it, it, so first of all, we, we sort of think of basketball as being the prototypical surprising event. If you, if you look at how we model the optimal surprise path, Okay, we've been talking mostly about mystery novels where the focus is on suspense. But if you look at the optimal surprise path, it's very different. It has a bunch of it has a bunch of movements, medium to small size movements and beliefs, as opposed to relatively few large movements and beliefs. So basketball is like that. You have a lot of medium to small size movements and beliefs coming from two pointers, three pointers, whatever. Um, whereas football, yeah. soccer, you have you know very few scoring events, but each one is dramatic and changed and changes significantly the fortunes of the teams. And so, and so, yeah, you could think of a basketball fan as someone who likes surprise and then a football fan, someone who likes suspense. And for sure, it would be interesting to look at basketball fans and ask, do they, are they more or less likely to be tennis fans than football fans? Yeah, it would be very interesting. I suspect uh, that soccer fans would be more interested yeah. in baseball um, because yeah, even though those yes. games are so different uh, from your features, the features that you're uh, you're demonstrating here, they're actually sort yes. of sort yes. of similar, right? Or golf, maybe golf. Yeah, so that or golf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I found another thing very interesting here, Jeff. You say, you know, this uh, reality yeah. TV show um, where, you know, you say in each episode, yes. one of the two contestants uh, gets eliminated and you, you could actually uh, increase entertain entertainment value here by, by saying, yeah. you know, somebody step forward. And yeah. then saying you're eliminated or you're going yes. through, you know, kind of making and it. This, a step this step is step somewhat step. apocryphal, yeah. but in fact, um, the the inspiration for that observation came from the reality show American Idol, where I'm certain that in a few episodes this actually happened. I've never actually been able to go back and find them where that where this did happen. So again, it might be completely apocryphal, but in my mind, this is how they did it. Um, you know, they would, they would, they would have two, they would, they would eliminate the candidates down to two. Uh, and, and one of these guys was going to be, was going to be sent home today. And um, yeah. sort of the naive, but suboptimal way to announce that to the audience would be to just say, and the person who's going home is, and then say the person's name. It turns out that and you know, this is just, you can just measure this by the amount of suspense that it generates. It's more exciting for the, for the host to say, uh, we're now going to announce who's going home. Bob, please take a step forward. And Bob takes a step forward. And now everyone's sort of focused on Bob and everyone is now saying, okay, based on having seen the host do this week after week, there's a certain probability that the person who steps forward winds up being the person who's sent home. But there's also a positive probability that after the person steps forward, the host says, you get to stay, and it's the other person that gets sent home. And so he sort of creates a sort of interim stage of uncertainty, which he then resolves with the final statement. And that's more suspenseful than having it all happen in one go, it turns out. Yeah, the other uh, interesting insight here, you actually derive sort of an optimum number right. of playoff games that you should have uh, if you have an ex-ante yes. expectation of the probability yes. 
of you know who is going to win uh, what's the probability that team is going to win right and that equates to yeah, the number yeah, of yeah. games you now, should have I, I wouldn't put season. that that calculate I wouldn't put too much stock in the calculation per se is the exact number I forget what the number is but the the idea behind it I think is crucial yeah. so like you know why do we have a seven game playoff series in many sports well you don't want to have an infinite playoff series even if you had infinite amount of time because you know one team we know is statistically better than the other and given an infinity of games for sure the team that's statistically better than the other is going to be the winner there will be no uncertainty whatsoever all suspense and surprise will be sort of vacuumed out of it um, on the other hand you don't want to just have one uh, a one game playoff either because then there's just too much randomness so the 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 qualitative lesson that comes from thinking about the trade-offs that we've been talking about is that it should be somewhere in between. It should be more than one and should be less than infinity. And, you know, I, I think like by happenstance, we found some parameters under which the number, the optimal number is in fact seven. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's very interesting. You know, I, I just, uh, before you conclude on this, I want to ask you this, you know, uh, again, the election season, it seems like whatever is coming through the airwaves is more entertainment than anything else. So politicians are showmen. Um, are they really uh, sort of maximizing the the electorate's entertainment? Uh, yeah. And when they go to the go to the uh, polling booth, maybe they vote for the greatest entertainer. You know, uh, right. I wonder if right. there is a. There, so so a we effect. talk about politics uh, from a different angle in the paper, but. Um, I, I think you might be right if, if what we're doing when we're voting is uh, sort of um, buying the, the information that we're going to get in the next four years, um, then someone who has marketed himself as someone who generates a lot of surprises um, it might very well be the person that... Um, people vote for. Now, I would, I, would, I would add another giant caveat to this, um, which is that sure. one thing our analysis um, is missing is the crucial distinction between revealing information of a good news variety versus revealing information of a bad news variety. And, and like we, we give the example in the paper of um, a, a doctor who knows the result of your um, cancer uh, screening. Um, he's not going to make it more entertaining for you by resolve, resolving the uncertainty in a gradual way, in the optimal way that we described. That would probably even amplify the distress that you get in hearing it. Um, and for that very reason, right. it's probably also true that a presidential candidate who has his hallmark is the, the guy who creates a lot of nasty surprises might not be the guy that you want to vote for. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there is sort of an asymmetry there yes. and you might yes. get different, different solutions because of that. Um, I want to jump into another extremely interesting paper. Yeah. Uh, it's entitled torture yes. and the commitment problem uh, in which you study torture as a mechanism for extracting information from a suspect who may or may not be informed. And you show that a standard uh, rationale for torture generates two commitment problems. Um, so what are the, what are yes, the commitment uh, problems? Yes, let me just mention, so the, the suspense and surprise paper, this was a joint paper that I wrote with Amir Kamenitsa and Alex Frankel, uh, two uh, professors in, in economics at uh, the Booth School of Business in Chicago. And this paper that we're talking about now, the torture paper is with my colleague at Northwestern, Sandy Paliga. Uh, so um, yeah. the, 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 the frictions that um, get in the way of using something like torture um, for that uh, stated purpose of extracting information are twofold. One is that um, they both stem from a kind of credibility problem. Um, one is that the, yeah. the person doing the torturing, okay, what is he doing? He's He's, inflict, he's threatening and actually sometimes carrying out the threat of inflicting pain on someone um, for the purposes of incentivizing that person to reveal some information. Okay? 
So that he's saying, you know, tell me, tell me who your who your leader is. Otherwise, I'm going to give you an electric shock. Okay, and um, of course, he has to. Yeah. It has to be believed that he will actually do this um, if if the threat is going to be effective at all. Okay, um, that's that's sort of obvious. But what's a little bit less obvious, the sort of subtle thing that we wanted to point out, is that there's another credibility problem, which is that. He also, it also has to be believable when the torturer promises to stop the torture, okay? So, so you know, imagine that we have this poor um, suspect being subjected to torture for some length of time, and, and he finally decides that he wants to give in and um, give, give some yeah. information and in, in order to stop the torture, Okay. He, he, he wants to strike a deal with his torturer. He wants to say, okay, please stop. I'll tell you what I know, okay? And the, the torturer, of course, would, yeah. would like to say, yes, you tell me what you know, and I will stop. The problem is that that promise is never credible because it, once you reveal to the torturer that, in fact, you do know something okay, by telling him some verifiable information, now the torturer, who previously was wondering whether this was just a waste of time, subjecting this poor person to all of this punishment, when this poor person might not know anything at all. Now he knows he's facing yeah. someone who has information, valuable information. And in fact, because he was there to extract valuable information from this person in the first place, he has an even stronger incentive after that first confession to continue torturing and to try to get even more information out of him. And the suspect, of course, is smart enough to anticipate this and is smart enough to know that any promise on the part of the torturer to halt the torture is not credible. And since that promise is not credible, there's no incentive for the torturee to reveal any information in the first place. Right, yeah, so, so the yes. agent here, uh, yes. who is the suspect who is getting tortured, what you're saying is that if, uh, he or she provides yes. some information, exactly. the torturing is never going to stop yeah. because the incentive yes. shifts to yes. extract more information. And because the agent also knows that torturing yes. is not going to be infinitely yes. um, progressing, at some point it has to stop. And you have two frameworks here. One is uh, extracting information yeah. that doesn't have a timestamp on it. And the other is you know, some kind of a uh, ticking, uh, what is it? Ticking bomb, I think you call it. Uh, so it has a timestamp beyond yes. which it doesn't have any utility. In both cases, the principal won't won't be able to able yeah. to continue beyond a horizon, right? So what you're saying here is that the agent has no incentive yes. ever yes. to reveal so, um, information. The the point is that the the agent knows that after some time. The principal has to quit, okay? And, you know, yeah. the, the simple reason for that is that the principal is not sure whether this agent has any information in the first place. And the principal, the, the only way the principal can find out whether this agent has any information is if the agent eventually reveals some information. And the longer this goes on without the agent revealing information, the more pessimistic the principal has to get about whether this agent is informed at all. And at some point, he becomes pessimistic enough that he says, look, this guy is not, this, this is a waste of time torturing this guy. Let's bring in the next guy and start torturing him. Maybe that will be more profitable. And the agent knowing this just knows that if he waits long enough, he'll get away, he'll, he'll, he'll be able to get away and, and the torture will stop. And he knows that there's no way to make the torture stop any sooner because of the friction we mentioned before, that the only possible way he could get the torture to stop sooner would be if he could offer a little bit of information in exchange for the halting of the torture. But of course, that's not going to work. Right, right. Uh, but there is a critical assumption here, Jeff, and that is torture right. inflicts right. costs on both the agent and the principal. Uh, presumably, you can yes. find a principal who yeah. has negative costs right. related to torture, right? Okay, so, so what happens um, First of all, let, let's just think about what, what would be the source of a cost for the principal. Of course, one cost might be just the distaste for, you know, inflicting suffering on another person. But probably 
the who whatever agency is involved with doing this torturing can find someone who has uh, no distaste and maybe even a taste for in, imposing suffering on another person. So yeah. that may may be the um, the not the most relevant definition of the cost. There is another definition of a cost, though, which I think applies even at the agency level, which is that you know this just takes time and resources. Um, and as I said before, right. there might be another guy in the other cell who's waiting his turn to, to, to get tortured. And the longer I spend torturing this guy, the more I'm just wasting time before going on to the next guy. And so that, that's a source of cost that probably is not manipulable. But um, you're absolutely right. We could, if, uh, if, you know, for the, for, in the interest of science, study what would happen if our principal actually had a taste for torture, okay? Um, and in fact, things might be even worse, okay, but for a different reason. Uh, you might very well be able to get lots of information out of someone, but um, you'll also get a lot of torture. Um, and uh, if, you know, at the society level, the, the level of uh, the voter, okay, who, who is willing to delegate torture to someone who is, who is prepared to do that if they know that it's going to yield valuable information, but doesn't like the, tor the idea of torture in general. From the point of view of the voter or for some, from society as a whole, you would get too much torture. You would get lots of torture with some information that comes out of it, but the, on balance, it would, be, it would not be worth it. Yeah, the other thing I thought about, Jeff, uh, is I think there is an aggregate torture limit, right? right. Uh, there is only so much torture you can impart on yes. an individual before that individual dies. So, so there is a limit yes. to aggregate torture you can impart. And it will be very obvious to both right. the agent and the principal as you reach that, that limit, right? And so I wonder how the behavior changes yes. because that's an observable metric. Right. So, and you know, I, maybe there is an optimal uh, utility function for the torturer that would uh, make it all work out. And maybe it's somehow sort of time related that he's he's prepared to do it just up until the point where the guy dies and then he lets him go. Um, right, right. Uh, but you go into, uh, so consider a different thing, which is rather right. than torturing, think about monetary right. payments. So, you know, I, how does that differ? Um, this is this is not really a serious recommendation, but it is there just to kind of amplify the point about the inefficiency of torture as a mechanism. Um, namely that the torture has these credibility problems and it's because torture is this, um, stick as opposed to a carrot, and um, it's hard to carry. It's hard to carry out promises involving a stick. It's easier to carry out promises involving a carrot. So, for example, um, if if my promise to you is that I will give you money every time you uh, give me valuable information, and I will stop giving you money as soon as you stop giving me valuable information, well. The, the promise to stop giving you money is a credible promise. I have no desire to just keep giving you money. Um, of course, the, the, the less credible promise is the one to give you money when you do give me valuable information. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, society runs all the time on contracts uh, where um, one party yeah. is contractually bound to make payments to another party when some contingency arises. So. But we know that that kind of commitment problem can be solved. And the other one can be solved just naturally because uh, it's in the interest of the, of the principal to not give money. Mm -hmm. You have uh, another extension where you, you have maybe a hierarchy of right. torture technologies, um, yeah. such as yeah. uh, sleep deprivation and waterboarding, right? So the existence of this differing um, type of technologies for torture, that has some implications. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's, it's the, the point we're trying to make is that the mere presence of the uh, more severe torture method. So we can talk about um, sleep deprivation as the mild form of torture and waterboarding as the severe form of torture. 
And even if waterboarding is never used, but it's just something that both parties know is available to the torturer, this itself creates commitment problems. Um, because, you know, like we said, once, once the victim starts divulging some information, now the incentives change such that the torturer has an even stronger incentive to carry out torture and maybe so strong that he might want to use the severe method. And the, that creates a deterrent uh, from revealing information in the first place. Right. And so, so would, I, would I be right, Jeff, in concluding that neither torture nor monetary payments are... Yes, really neither of them should really be considered to be effective. Um, uh, the, the, the one other policy point that, that we get from this observation is simply that um, conventions like the Geneva Convention Against Torture um, you know, are not just sort of uh, admirable moral prescriptions, but they might even be you know, welfare improving in the sense that when we take away the possibility of using these uh, dangerous, severe torture techniques, then interrogation might become a more effective mechanism, okay? Simple interrogation without the shadow of the threat of torture um, can be more effective. Right. Yes. Sort of negotiation, right? Um, yeah. Um, I want to touch on a couple more papers, um, and these are very topical ones. So. You, you have a recent one uh, entitled Rot Rotation yeah. as Contagion Mitigation. Um, and and you, you're looking at, um, if I understand this correctly, Jeff, let's say yeah. company X has two departments, A and B, and let's say 1,000 people in each of those departments. You have a prescription here as to what might be optimum. Yeah. Uh, we, are we are talking about pandemics here. Let's yeah. say, yeah. you know, we are worried about uh, COVID-19. Um, um, so... Yeah. The, the point we try to make in the paper is that um, a sort of very natural and probably commonly used um, scheme for rationing space in an organization in a situation like we're in now in a pandemic where uh, for, for, for reasons of social distancing, the space has to be rationed, namely rotation, uh, dividing the organization into two groups and sort of rotating them. That has a surprising sort of more subtle benefit than, you know, sort of superficially is it, it obviously has. Namely that um, it has a way of uh, managing the progression of a disease, sort of a hidden progression of the disease. Uh, so you mean by, by rotations, do you mean... Um, you, you, you let department A in uh, one time and they, they stay on for a little while and then they take, you take them out. And yeah, so, so rotation would mean any scheme mean where group A is there for some duration and then group B is there for the next interval and then group A again and then group B again. And the, the, the design question is how frequent do you yep. rotate? How, how long is the duration that group A stays before okay. being swapped okay. out? And um, the, the point that we make in the paper is that um, it, the, it's always optimal to go to extremes. Um, that is, it's either, it's depending on the progression of the disease, um, it's either optimal to rotate every day, okay, as, that is like as frequently as possible, or to, to rotate as rarely as possible. Um, that is, the, there's no middle ground. You, you, you don't want to do anything in between those two things. And uh, the, the logic is pretty simple, okay? Um, and it has to do with, um, sort of the, the critical determinant is um, how long it takes for, you know, the organization, the, the health department in the organization, the, the medical staff, what, whatever, to identify um, a contagion breakout in the organization, okay? So it really, it really breaks down as to whether that's a very rapid turnaround or it's a slow turnaround, okay? So think about testing. Is testing 
is the testing turnaround yeah. 24 hours or is it seven days? And it turns out that um, that determines whether you want to rotate frequently or infrequently. So let me try to walk through the logic. Uh, let's say that you have had yeah. group A uh, at the organization yesterday, okay? Now, what you know is that um, someone might be infected in group A, and, the, and if, the, if someone is infected in group A, then they will have possibly spread the disease to some other members of group A, okay? But they can't spread it to anyone in group B, right. okay? So um, group A is, if, if there was an, an infection, then group A is starting to get contagious, okay? And you could sort of track over time, as long as group A sticks together, uh, what's the fraction on average of group A that's going to be infected, okay? Now, at some point, you're gonna find out for sure that um, mm -hmm. someone in group A was infected. Maybe they get symptoms, they go to a doctor, they get a test, they confirm that they had, uh, they had the virus, and you know, therefore, that the virus had been spreading for some time within group A, okay? Now, suppose that you know that that only takes one yeah. day. Okay, so suppose that you know that if someone is infectious yeah. now, you're going to find out tomorrow, right? Um, well, in that right. case, if you have to think about, have to think about this. Um, so, so if you if you if you can determine yes. and act really fast, then you want to. Intuitively, you want to rotate fast. Um, right? Let me think. Uh, so you say here is that infrequent rotation becomes optimal if the organi organization reacts slowly. And so, in other words, frequent rotation becomes yes. optimal if the organization reacts fast. Um, right, right, right. Okay. So, um, yeah. And, and the reason is this. If the organization reacts quickly, like if testing takes just 24 hours, then you know that in, within organization A, yeah. um, it's likely that there's, if there's any infection at all, there's not very many. Because since you didn't find out yesterday that someone was infected two days ago, it's been at most a day that the infection has been spreading in group A. So if there's any infection right. at all, it's likely to be a small fraction, okay? Um, and therefore, you know, the, the amount of spread of the disease that you're going to get uh, in group A is going to be much larger than the amount of spread you would get in the disease if group B were the one that you would activate. Because you have a lot of uninfected people in group A and a small number of infected people in group A. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the time length was long, okay, mm -hmm. And you knew that um, it's quite possible that Group A has been there for a week and it takes eight days to get a positive test back. And so it might have been that the, the disease has been spreading for that whole week. That tells you that if there's any infection, then almost all of Group A is already infected. They've been together for seven days. Okay? And if almost all of Group A is already infected, yeah. then there's really no loss to having group A be active yet again, because there's no new infections you're gonna get in group A. Group A is effectively already saturated with the disease. And so in that case, you wanna just rotate out group A as infrequently as possible in order to avoid getting an infection in group B, which you know for the moment is, uh, is uninfected. Yeah, so, so the thought experiment I was, I was going through, it doesn't have to be two groups, it can be more groups, but essentially, let's say, you know, a group comes in and yes. to, to enter the space, you need to get tested, let's say, right? And if you have uh, quick results coming back to you, yes. you have a good yes. estimation of what is happening in that group. Uh, and then that gives you a policy as opposed to, yes. yeah, you did the test, but you would only know a week after. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that gives you another policy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on one other paper, which is, again, very yes. topical, uh, optimal test allocation. 
So this is where um, you say a health authority chooses a binary action for each of the several individuals that differ in their pre-test probabilities of being infected and the additive losses associated with the two types of decision errors. And this authority has a resource constraint, and that is the number of tests available to it, I think, right? So, and those tests have different yes. levels of sensitivities and specificities. So sensitivity in this case is the ability to test to correctly identify those yes. with the disease. So true positive rate, uh, yes. as opposed to specificity, which yes. is the true negative rate. So the, the tests are all different. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you're asking the question, how do they yeah. allocate yeah. those tests so, to, so, to this um, uh, heterogeneous population? The interesting observation in this paper is that um, there is a lot of uh, gain that comes from optimizing the allocation of the test based on its sensitivity and specificity to the right um, uh, test subjects. And in particular, sort of the naive allocation, which is, you know, all of the people that you think are um, most likely to test positive, you want to give them a test with a high sensitivity, and then you sort of want to work your way down from there. That kind of test allocation turns out to be suboptimal, and actually you can get dramatic improvements by reallocating things in ways that are, that are hard to, you know, describe qualitatively, but which has a sort of clear algorithm. So we, we, we lay out a very simple... Uh, priority system for deciding who gets tests of different um, specificity and sensitivity as a function of the, you know, their pre-test conditions, you know, symptoms, the probably their exposure to other infectious individuals, which all boil down to the probability that they have the, the virus. Yeah, I, I was thinking, Jeff, also, you might I haven't thought through this, but there is an inverse, inverted problem here, which is, let's say we get a vaccine that is going to have, yes. you know, uh, some some level of efficacy, right? And it might affect the populations differently. So what you get out of in, uh, out of vaccinating sure. a population could be different from another. And again, right. there is a there right. is a policy. Right, right. right. No, so so for sure, the the right. optimal allocation of a vaccine, and indeed, we we were likely to have several different vaccines, um, and they will probably be different in terms of their efficacy. Uh, that it's probably also true for vaccines that sort of the naive allocation would not be the optimal one, and that's especially true for vaccines because of the externality. So. You want to vaccinate someone not just because it will stop that one individual from getting infected, but also because it'll stop that individual from transmitting the disease to others. And, and that, gives, that gives very different prescriptions in terms of who should get a vaccine than sort of the simple naive calculation of, like, let's find the most vulnerable and vaccinate them. Right, right. Uh, and I want to close with... Um... Uh, yes. One paper, a cake cutting solution for gerrymandering, <laughs> and it, it's fairly uh, fairly intuitive. Uh, so yes. you say major party proposes a partition yes. of a state into districts, yes. and the minor party has so no yeah, it's it's this the old idea of um, you know you have to cut a cake, and you can have one person cut and the other choose which slice to take, and that's going to make sure that the person cutting it cuts it in half, and you get an equal division. So the, the idea is how can we apply this to the, the obviously more complicated problem of dividing a state up into multiple districts. Um, and, and I propose a way of thinking about that problem so that it's basically the same as the cake cutting problem and it disciplines effectively the, the party in, in the majority which designs the, the district map to do it in a way that doesn't um, uh, that doesn't marginalize the minority party. And if I understand this correctly, Jeff, it has to be that the majority party comes up with the yeah. partition for the entire street into districts. And the option the minority party ha has is either to so, so, so um, completely, right? They cannot the, pick and choose. Just like, just like the cake cutting problem, we need that the outcome of the game is some division. So, so just rejecting that would be, uh, you know, 
that 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 wouldn't be an acceptable outcome because we we wouldn't have a partition yet. So instead, what I propose is that the um, in, in analogous to the cake cutting problem, the the person who gets to choose, he doesn't just reject it; he gets to pick which slice he wants. So what, what we need to do is we want to we want to devise from the proposed oh, oh, division okay. um, what the what the decider can yeah, do yeah. with it, right? And so I propose a way that the decider can take districts right. and, you know, reform them out of the districts that were proposed to him, okay? And then the proposer, knowing that these districts can be reformed right. by the decider, will make the initial formation one that will be acceptable to the decider. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah, yeah, so very much, very much like the cake-cutting uh, cake cake problem, yeah, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Uh, this has been really interesting. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending time with me on a on a weekend. Yes. Okay, bye bye. And uh, good luck with your research.